and welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I am Tyler Smith. I am David Bax. And thank you for listening. David. Yeah. How you doing? Oh, good. Why are you doing so good? I've had a, a fun board game filled weekend. Ish. As have you. Yeah, I, that's true. I, yes. t- I, I tweeted last night. Um, uh, I'm on Twitter, if you didn't know. Yeah. Listeners, I'm on Twitter at The Pretension. Please follow me. Um, but uh, I tweeted last night that you and I were actually going to hang out. That's right. Which we never do. Yeah. <laughs> that's weird. Yeah. Oh, well. <laughs> I, yeah, I would say like probably about eighty-five percent of the conversations that we have are or either before on, or, or after on the we record. Or uh, I'm saying that they're on the podcast. Oh yeah, absolutely. it's the other fifteen percent that's before and after we record. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, but yeah, we uh, we we hung out last night. We had a sort of a double date type of thing, or was it stay in double stay date type in, of thing? Yeah, yeah. Uh, played some board games. So I've had a board game filled weekend, and it's a lot of fun because <laughs> I won its categories, and I just won it Carcassonne. That's right. Which I had never played before. It's an awesome game. It is. It's delightful. And it's one of those games that the minute you start playing it, you're like, this is as dorky as hell. Yeah. Uh, but it's delightful. It's a lot of fun. So, uh, friend of the show. I, sorry for mentioning uh, Jason Eakins so much. He has recently moved here. And so you're so, seeing a lot of him. So I've been seeing a lot of him. And uh, so friend of the show, Jason Eakin, is what, he's, he's who got me started on, uh, on Carcassonne. And, uh, oh, boy. It's so, uh, so much fun. You know, it's not a lot of fun. Hang on a second. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. You kicked ass at categories. Your girlfriend did very well at Uno. But I did very well at Labyrinth. You did. All right? For those that don't know what Labyrinth is, it's an awesome game with a constantly moving maze. All right? And I did very well. And it's a fun game. Everyone should look it up. We had a fun time. Uh, we we played it with Matt Champagne, friend of the show, Matt Champagne, and uh, that was delightful. So right. Um, okay. Well, one more thing. One more board game related thing. Okay then. Uh, listeners, please write in and tell us your opinion. Is Hungry Hungry Hippos a toy? Would you can Would you classify Hungry Hungry Hippos as a toy? That's right. all I'm gonna say. All right. Yeah. Moving we on. Tell them what the alternative is. Just toy. Right. Is it a toy? Yeah. Because that was the thing. It was toys, H, it's categories. Right. Someone put Hungry Hungry Hippos. Which, w- which if it had worked... Would have been three points. Would have been three points. That's great. But... Uh, We're not going to say which way we... Which... Right. Who... Which way let's put it. Which way we feel about it. Right. It was voted down. Yeah. Uh, and I would like to know what the listeners think. Is I would Hungry Hungry Hippos myself, yes. a toy? Toy. Okay. Uh, man, I had a, I had a tra- uh, transition there a little ways back. You you said uh, something I'm not happy about, or something. Or something like that's that. not fun. Oh, that's I guess, right. Yeah, is uh, I don't know, being a 13 year old girl and getting raped by Roman Polanski, or getting arrested if you are Roman Polanski. I'd say either one is not fun. Probably not fun. Yeah, probably one is less fun than the other. I gotta say, but yeah. Uh, but yeah, uh, so yeah, Roman Polanski. Uh, a mere few weeks after we mentioned him on the on the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, about uh, well, I was talking artist. about Michael Vick. You're talking about Michael Vick, yes. And yeah. He brought up Woody Allen and Roman Polanski, and then uh, lo and behold, he gets apprehended. And uh, yeah, I'm interested to. It's interesting to see what people think of it. And uh, you and I haven't talked about it. At we all. haven't talked We've about been it. Saving and it I'm for the podcast. Worried that an argument's going to break out because I really don't know. I could see you going either way on this one. So uh, so where where are you falling here, David? Uh, he's guilty, and it's about damn time. All right, then. That's what I fall. You? Okay. Uh, similar, yes. Okay. Yes. Um, 
I mean, he and pled guilty. I'm not he d- right. Yeah, I'm not saying like like people say, oh, O.J. Simpson did it. You know, and there's no, no he pled right. guilty. Right. And I mean, there's there there is a certain degree of backstory where he pled guilty as part of a plea deal, and it was understood. Everybody agreed, including the judge, that if he pleads guilty, then he will get like time served, a big ass fine, and then like community service, or maybe it was like a bit more a little bit more jail time but not very much everybody agreed to that and then apparently at the last minute the judge said i'm not gonna go with that i'm actually gonna give him like the max or something like that and that's when he fled Uh and so i don't necessarily like the idea of a judge jerking somebody around but at the same time it's his prerogative he can do that if he wants um but it's it's one of those weird things like ah well if the idea of the deal hadn't been made maybe he would not have pled guilty and maybe right. he would have fought it although at the same time he, he he was guilty i mean he admitted that he did it and so if he had been well anyway it's it 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 is a, it's slightly more complicated than i first thought that said yes he did plead guilty um and yeah it's but it what's fascinating i feel i think most people feel the way we do but on uh, facebook some people that i that i have known uh, in the past, like one of them, the day of, as his like Facebook status update, uh, had said free Roman Polanski, and I was like, really? That's that's fascinating. I mean, don't get me wrong, he's an amazing filmmaker. There's yeah, no question about definitely. that. And and I feel like his his situation, as we've discussed about, I mean, just he tells not necessarily the same story, but he explores the same themes over and over again. Which is, you know, the a protagonist who is mostly alone. He may have a few allies. He or she may have a few allies, but they will they will either betray him or her, or they will die. And the protagonist is completely alone, up against forces. They could be spiritual. They could be really whatever. Nazis. Nazis. Uh, Noah Cross. Mm-hmm. Uh, whoever Oliver Twist is up against. I mean, it's it happens in pr- in almost every. Polanski film is a lot just a person feeling and literally being alone up against a much more powerful force than him or herself um Rosemary's Baby is another one Mm -hmm. and and that's the thing is you look at the events of Roman Polanski's life and you see okay well clearly this is how he feels and whether he actually knows that those are the themes that he's exploring in his films whether he knows it or not Mm mm-hmm a lot of himself seems to be right there on the screen. Um, and certainly living in Europe and being una- unal- you know, not allowed to come back into the U.S., I'm sure he probably, that contributed to it. Um, that said, uh, you know, yeah, I mean, it's... And I've heard people talk about the girl and that she has forgiven him and stuff. And it's like, well, that's fine, but he broke a law. It's not a civil suit, you know? Yeah. Uh, and so, um, so yeah, okay. Well that, that, uh, I, I kind of expected you to, to go that way, but I wasn't sure. Um, so, uh, I, I, I really don't understand, um, the, the whole like free Roman Polanski thing. It's, he, he, he's, he should, uh, he sh- there should be some justice for what he did. Yeah. It's, it doesn't matter that he made good movies. That doesn't, yeah. doesn't excuse him from anything. Right. I mean, it's, and it, it does make me wonder, like, if he were just a guy, 
Or let's say this. He was a an unknown filmmaker. Uh-huh. Let's say he's still a filmmaker. And he made just some lower level films that nobody really knows or cares about. I, I, I have a feeling people would not be saying, the, the few people that are, and it, it does seem to be in the minority, certainly. Um, the few people that are saying free Roman Polanski, I don't think they'd be saying it. I think yeah. they are trying to justify, or not justify, but but uh, almost cancel out his crime because he's such an amazing artist. Well, amazing artists can do terrible things as well. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and so. Look at Mel Gibson. There you go. I don't know if he is an amazing artist. We don't talk enough about Apocalypto. He made one amazing movie <laughs> and that's apocalypto did you ever see the robert duvall quote about that yeah it's the best film he's seen in 25 years yeah and movie. that he was voting for it for best picture that year regardless of what was on the, uh, like on the ballot or whatever <laughs> and it's like good for you robert duvall i like i like that duvall who's kind of been come to he's been he's now known as like a very because of the roles that he's played recently kind of a salt of the earth southern kind of guy but i like that at bottom, he's a balls-out crazy person <laughs> who says, Apocalypto, best film in 25 years. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. You think that I'm uh, the guy from Lonesome Dove. I am, in fact, the guy from Apocalypse Now. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, it's we, we don't talk enough about Apocalypto. I'm sorry to get from Roman Polanski to Apocalypto. But, but I think, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, once again, you and I pretty much agree on something, and so there's not a whole lot of talking we can do about it. But uh, I'd love to hear the uh, uh, the listener listeners' thoughts, yeah, uh, on on the message board or, or where wherever, what have you. Absolutely. Uh, okay, so speaking of uh, Robert Duvall was talking about Apocalypse being the best film in 25 years. This is a film that he obviously thinks is going to have a lasting impact. All right. Today we're going to talk about another film and its sequels. Yeah, that I think had a, quite a lasting impact. Absolutely, um, and it's because it's been. We originally, I originally wanted to do this back in in May or whenever, uh, because that was the actual ten year anniversary. Oh yeah. So now we're at like the ten and a half year anniversary, but yeah. it's still it's still two thousand nine. So this is the ten year anniversary of the Matrix. The Matrix, and yes. then it's two sequels that came out in what was what was that o two and o three? Uh, or the, no, so. they're both o three. Yeah. yeah, March and November. If yeah. I remember correctly, or something like that. Yeah, <laughs> I like that your voice literally drops when even mentioning the word sequel. Uh, you're like the oh, the Matrix, and of course it's two sequels. Yeah. Um, but uh, now, David, you 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 really are, are are. This was your idea. I have nothing against the Matrix. It had been submitted a couple of times for the best films of all time. Yeah, and uh, I would have been fine with it. Being on there, because yeah, it's I really, actually probably in. If I were to make a top one hundred, yeah, it would probably make the cut. It's just it really for for a lot of reasons. One is that it's just there's it's everything that I think a, a, a like a blockbuster movie can be, and and just a good movie can mm-hmm. be. Like it just it's not it has amazing effects, revolutionized special effects, but that's not all it is. And but it's not just the amazing effects, right? It's the way they're used. You know, right. it's not that they. Yes, they came up with something groundbreaking, yeah, and uh, that hadn't been seen before, right? But they also used it uh, in. They didn't just. I'm trying to think. Like you remember, like shortly after Swordfish came out, which I actually kind of just for. Shits and giggles. I actually kind of enjoyed Swordfish. It was <laughs> way over the top and it was yeah. ridiculous and. 
I always, for some reason, as I don't think John Travolta's a very good actor at all. I think uh, Quentin Tarantino got one good performance out of him because he's Quentin Tarantino. Again, but, I will bring up several other performances that he's very good in. I think he's very good in Get Shorty. I think he's very good in Primary Colors. Oh, he is good in Primary Colors. That's a good point. And I think he's and I think he's but a, Get a Shorty and action, but Get Shorty and Saturday Night Fever. He just has to sort of be. He just has to sort of embody cool. Yeah, which he does. Yeah, I don't know if he's a good performance. Though. I couldn't embody cool. Okay, there could you, go. you? No, but um. Anyway, speaking of swordfish, like swordfish and the Punisher and like Broken Arrow, whenever, whenever he's like a really hammy bad guy, even as as dumb as it is, Battlefield Earth, Battlefield Earth, I always find it really entertaining. <laughs> um, you might like taking a Pelham one two three actually. Really, now that I think about it. Um, but anyway, you remember like swordfish? They used. Uh, at the beginning, when the hostage explodes in the street, right? They they use the same sort of. Cause this was maybe a year or two after Matrix, yeah. um, and they they use the same like bullet time, whatever you call it, uh, yeah. technology. But it's, he explodes, and like all these ball bearings go all over the place and destroy everything in like a three sixty radius. Yeah, and the camera goes, and it just seems it just seems really showy. It's just like look what we can do now. Yeah, you know. Whereas, at the beginning of Matrix, when Carrie Ann Ma- Moss runs up the fucking wall and then yeah. jumps in midair and kicks the cop, it's not just like, that was an awesome effect. It's like, that was fucking awesome. Yeah, I mean, nothing like that had been seen at the time. I mean, that's... that's and, it, and it has since been done so often in to the point that it's even done in, like, comedies now. Yeah. Um, it's It's been done so often that I you kind of lose the... the the magic of it, uh, but at the time you hadn't seen anything like that. You've yeah. seen. I would say it's it's akin to uh, Terminator Two and oh, the yeah. T one the T one thousand, which is also like, you know, wow, that's an amazing effect. But it's also, I mean, Robert Patrick is terrifying. It's it's yeah. the effect blend with blend with the performance. Yeah, and and with with Matrix, not necessarily bl- that it's the performance it's blended with. Mm-hmm. It's that they're using like. Uh, wire foo stuff that you've seen in Hong right. Kong movies for decades, right. you know, and paying respect to that mm-hmm. and approaching the bullet time and the other special effects from the same point of view. Like, uh, it's not about the effects; the fight comes first. Whereas, right. you know, in in with with Robert Patrick, it's like it's not just about the effect. This has to be a, ter- a terrifying performance, right? First, and that the effects augment that. And I'd and, say it's similar in that way to Jurassic Park. Right. Uh, I feel like those three movies, I mean, they all came out in the same decade. Uh-huh. I'd say those three probably did more to revolutionize special effects than, than any other film yeah. uh, in recent memory. Um, and but then, of like, course, they all led to some really shitty movies. Oh, that, absolutely. They just overused those kind of effects. But you're absolutely right in the sense that it's using the effect to enhance the world that and enhance the action, enhance the world, in some cases enhance the character. And that's something that I feel like to bring up another special effects extravaganza. That's something that I don't think George Lucas really ever understood with the most recent Star Wars films uh-huh. because it always just felt it, it always felt like he was so dazzled by them that he forgot to actually put them to use. Like when he was to me the I'm sure I've brought this up before that 
that there's a scene in uh, I think Attack of the Clones where Ewan McGregor is talking to a character that's completely CG, and like the eye lines don't quite match up, but everything and it's completely everything except Ewan McGregor, as far as I can tell, is com- is completely invented uh-huh. and just and it feels invented. It doesn't feel like he's inhabiting the space, but right. in like T one thousand. Jurassic Park and certainly the Matrix it does feel like these are all that you can reach out and touch these people and even in the midst of these crazy effects yeah um, but and what I like about it is that the uh, the fighting effects uh, in the Matrix they really do seem to uh, at first it's just like oh that's awesome but you actually come to find out that they serve the story as well and you yeah. discover that these people Yeah that's what you, that's what I thought you were getting at earlier when you said that that they uh serve to flesh out the world because yeah. it's not again to bring back bring up swordfish Yeah um that's what's happening when you're going in slow motion around the explosion is clearly happening in like only in the movie not in right. like it's only happening for you the the viewer right. it's not happening in the world of the movie Right uh, and yeah, like you said, you find out in the Matrix that they can actually do these things yeah. in the real world, or what we are led to believe right. is the real world. And you don't realize it right away. Is what's neat about it is you just think, "Oh, this is awesome," and then you come to realize that no, these people are actually kind of bending reality because they understand that it's not reality. Mm-hmm. And that and that is such a mind blowing concept. And and the fact that it's given to you eventually, like after a solid, what, 25 minutes? Yeah. You know, and so you see these amazing action sequences where you're like, oh, that's, that was, those are really great effects and really great stunts. Oh, it actually serves a story purpose as well. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. This is the best. I'm going to use this as Segan to talk about the actors in the movie. Okay. Um, what sells, again, we talk about Carrie Ann Moss when she's in that room and the cops come in. Yeah. And she runs up the wall and... Spins around and freezes in midair and kicks the cop. It's pretty right. awesome. Um, and what sold us, before we even saw that, mm-hmm. what sold us on the idea that that's actually happening, that there's something superhuman about her, yeah. is Hugo Weaving saying, no, Lieutenant, your men are already dead. <laughs> um, and uh, let's talk about, just for a second, how awesome Hugo Weaving is in all three movies, actually. Right. And why he is the saving grace of the other two films for yeah. me? Just what he represents is uh, not just not just his performance, but everything about that character. Um, that in the first film he represents the you know the the Matrix and the robots or the machines or whatever. Um, he represents them, and then he feels like. Sold, he's like kind of sold out by them to a degree or abandoned by them. Uh-huh. And so in the second and third film, he becomes kind of like a terrorist, really. Mm-hmm. So much so that two warring factions now have to kind of combine. Yeah. Otherwise, he'll destroy them all. Yeah. And, and that always fascinated me because that is a difference between 99 and 2003. Is right. the idea of terrorism. And, and it's like, oh, this is... At least with our enemies, we knew what to expect. Yeah, and this isn't like a, this isn't an institution we're fighting. Right. This is a, a crazy person, right. or eventually a group of crazy people who all right are Hugo Weaving. Yeah. In this case, but yeah, his performance is great because it does seem, it does seem very machine like, but but more. I mean, it's definitely it's a malevolent. Um, it's not Hal. 
right. know, no. which is cold. This is machine-like and definitely malevolent. Yeah. So. It, and it has... There's another movie, two movies that came out in 1999. The Matrix and American Psycho. Yeah. And they both feature non-American actors doing way overemphasized American accents. Yeah. Which I just love so much. <laughs> Like I think it's a big part of the reason that I watch Gossip Girl now is because Ed Westwick, who plays Chuck Bass, mm. is British, but he's playing an American and he talks like that. He he has that just way overdone. Like you know, you help your landlady take out her garbage, <laughs> like that. <laughs> I think American Psycho is two thousand. Was it? I think it was. You're right. Otherwise, I would have always said it every time I talk about ninety nine. You're right, actually, because I saw it right after I graduated. Okay. Um, but the, although, and I would also say, as long as I'm disagreeing with you, listen up everybody, um, that, uh, I don't necessarily feel like it's an exaggerated version of an American accent when he does it in American Psycho, because he's, he's not playing an American, he's playing a very specific type of American that is, or the essence of 80s yuppie, Uh and all the other guys talk like that as well, and it's just... He's not doing like a stereotypical American. He's doing a stereotypical yuppie. Right. Because as we've seen, he can do just a regular, normal, you know, like a believable, not stylized American accent. Yeah, kind of. It's always a little stylized. Is it? I think so. Well, he, he's Pretend not... to Yuma, it, I feel like he's not doing uh, anything but to... He's, uh, you know, he gets to do an accent, like a dialect. That's true. In that. That's true. Good old... You're not going to see Christian Bale in like... Uh, I don't know. I'm trying to think of some filmmaker. That <laughs> he wouldn't be in like um, a Cassavetes film where it's oh, supposed to be true. all naturalistic. Yeah, that's true. You know, as good an actor as Christian Bale is, he tends to go for somewhat heightened movies. That's true. Hmm. That's something to think about, everybody. Um, <laughs> but to get back on uh, back on topic, uh, but it, what the thing about Hugo Weaving is, where is he now? Like, he did. I mean, he's in the Lord of the Rings. Yeah, and it seemed like. I, I don't know. It, I v think for Vendetta. Was, he was really great in V for Vendetta. Oh, I never saw it. Oh, man. I read it. Um, well, imagine that uh, Imagine that voice saying <laughs> those lines. Um, it, I, it really felt to me like it, he was, and I was naive at the time. I was a brand sort of a somewhat new film buff mm-hmm. when I had 17 years old. Um, or I was actually still 16 when The Majors came out. Uh, yeah. Yeah, um, it seemed like he was gonna be awesome. He was gonna blow up because he was so awesome. Yeah, and it, it was—I think—it was one of my earliest disillusionments as a, as a film buff <laughs> that Hugo, Hugo Weaving wasn't suddenly starring in every movie as some awesome. Like he's sort of—it's—I can tell it's gonna happen again with uh, uh, Christoph Waltz in oh, yeah. *Inglorious Bastards*. Like, well, obviously. That man is brilliant, and that's the, a great villain performance. Right. He's going to be everywhere, and I, and, you know, maybe in ten years we'll be like, "Why isn't Christoph Waltz in, in everything?" Here's my vote. When they and I don't know if I thought of this myself or maybe it's already happening. I don't think it is. I think I thought of this myself. Okay. When the time comes and they make a Captain America movie, Red Skull, Christoph Waltz, yeah, because they're going to need a German actor, yeah, or somebody to do a bad German accent, and. uh I'd say go with uh, go with the, go straight to the source because I think he'd be amazing. I've actually been re- off topic again. Okay, uh, 
I've actually been reading a lot of Captain America lately, old Captain America. Mm-hmm. It's, it's ridiculous, but it's awesome. But it it's is, ridiculous. Yeah. Well, Because the- he's talking constantly. He's not just wisecracking. He's right. talking constantly while yeah. he's fighting, in the early comics at least. Uh, well, all those heroes did in the early comics. Yeah? Just See, always- I don't know enough about early superhero comics. It's little, like if you read early Iron Man comics, he's like, I'll just push this button. You, no, you just push the button. You know, <laughs> we can see what you're doing. Um, but uh, but he's fighting like 15 people at once, and he's it's as if he's giving a master class on how to fight. <laughs> he's always talking about how in shape he is and how fit he is and how yeah. he can do these things because he's so fit. Right. As an American of, of, should bo- be. of body and mind. Of, right, exactly. It's, uh, every fight is a little lecture. It's awesome. I, <laughs> I, I love it. Well, Captain America, especially lately, ah, damn it. Okay, so we're off on we're off on a tangent. But Captain America, lately, they've really explored his character and what he means because in the early when he was first created, it was pretty much just propaganda, uh-huh. and they now, especially like with what America has kind of become and people talking about what patriot what patriotism really means, uh, they've really explored in his character, especially the idea of like the Civil War thing with marvel you heard what that was right no i don't really follow that that the government required uh superheroes of any kind not just mutants it kind of it was explored in x-men but it was Uh that superheroes of any kind to register and declare themselves uh and iron man and a handful of others said yes this is a good idea this is what we should do because iron man at that point uh, people knew he was Tony Stark, so he was already kind of out. Uh-huh. Um, but then Captain America said, no, nah, this is un-American. I don't think that's the way to go. And so he actually, you know, w- goes against the government because he's patriotic like that. It's really... And then you get... That's awesome. Iron Man fighting Captain America and s- heroes on both sides. That is awesome. Why, do, why, do I, why am I not as into comics as I, I don't know. Be. You used to be really into comics. What yeah. happened? I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, so but uh, back to the Matrix. Okay, Captain America, Red Skull, Christoph Waltz, Hugo Weaving, Matrix. Here we go. <laughs> um, and, and the uh, in addition to Hugo Weaving, yeah. I was uh, sort of introduced to Carrie Ann Moss via yeah. the Matrix, and that's another one. She's good in the. Ma- okay, here's here's what I'll say about the acting in the Matrix. It is the quintessential uh, Keanu Reeves performance. Uh-huh. In the sense that it's one of the only performances where I will accept him, uh-huh. uh, as because as I said on Slash Filmcast so long ago, his whole befuddled thing doesn't work when he's in Much Ado About Nothing, you know, right. and stuff like that, or when he's supposed to play like a world weary kind of John Constantine or whatever. Uh-huh. Um, it works. He he just he always seems kind of confused, and so. In playing a, a character who is complete, who is you know the Alice and Alice in Wonderland, and he needs to seem constantly confused, and he needs to, and he's kind of the the audience surrogate. Um, then he's great. He does a really good job, and then as he gains more confidence in his knowledge and his abilities, uh, we're able to to see that. But he's still not totally sure of himself because he's still outside of what he grew up with, with what he's used to. So it works for that, but. Mm-hmm. In general, I'd say he's not a good actor. It's just the the details of that role work very well for what he can do. And I would say with Carrie Ann Moss, I feel like she's not a strong actress, really. It sort of turned out that way, didn't it? Yeah. I didn't know, you know, because I saw The <laughs> Matrix. I didn't right. know her. Right. And she was great. 
in, as, as Trinity, and I liked her little part in Chalk a lot. Yeah, you know, and then she's getting memento. I thought she was fine. See, that's memento. when I, that's that's when the uh, that's when I saw the emperor had no clothes. Actually, it was memento. I think I'm not sure if I would say no clothes, but uh, you you definitely start to see the the limits of yeah. of how far she can go. I mean, she's required to yell. She's required to you know cry. And um, she's required to say fuck in like three times in every sentence, but that's a problem with the screenplay. Okay. I spent the last couple of weeks really shitting on Memento. You sure did. And people don't <laughs> care for it as far as I can tell uh, oh, really? on, the old, on the old forum there or one oh. guy anyway. But, uh, but yeah. And th- there are some things that you believe in, in her performance and some things you don't. I would say that you believe the things that you need to believe. But in the details, it's like, mm, I'm not really necessarily buying that. Yeah. But uh, but in Matrix... But she was right for Matrix. Yeah. Because, again, she's kind of like John Travolta is Tony Monero. You know, <laughs> she just has to be cool. Oh, yeah. You know? And she does it very well. She, she does icy and cool very well. She absolutely does. So much so... And I, you know what? I and Because, uh, full disclosure, I'm a huge fan of the, these Matrix movies. Yeah. Even the ones that aren't good. I'm still a huge fan of them. And I have like... So the, the last two. Yeah, well, the second one I think is okay. Um, the <laughs> you and I maybe we can get in an argument later. I don't oh, know. good. Um, I've watched I think all the special features on the ten disc box set that I have, and so I, I want to special I, features all produced by a friend of the show Eric Matthews. That's right. Go ahead. Um, so I want to say I feel bad for kind of being mean to Carrie Ann Moss because she comes across as a real sweetheart. I'm sure she in is, the yes. in, in the uh, uh, material, you know. And it it is actually uh I would recommend watching the um the full it's almost like feature length the making of uh, the first matrix mm-hmm. you know and see how much cuz the Wachowskis were they had made bound but they were pretty much unproven especially with the budget like right. they had in the matrix you know and you had uh you know you had Keanu Reeves and Lawrence Fishburne and then you had there's there's other people the Carrie Ann Moss Joe Pantoliano yeah, Joe Pantoliano but yeah but uh and then you know the Tank and Dozer and all them, you know, and no. people, and it's amazing. I don't know if it was the Wachowskis or or what, but it's amazing to see how much all these actors and the crew mm-hmm. really believed in what they were doing, even though yeah. it was relatives unknown, given being given a shit ton of money to make uh, a movie that it doesn't come from a, an established property, yeah. like a lot of movies that I mean. The Wachowskis would go on to make Speed Racer eventually. You know, right. Maybe they could have done that first because they could have. Yeah, you know that's an established property. But the Matrix the was a big gamble because it because it wasn't an established property. I think that there you find the trust of the studio. You wouldn't trust Speed Racer with somebody that hadn't proven themselves. You would trust something completely completely new. You know, like you'd be okay with that. Much like Christopher Nolan couldn't have started with Batman. He had to earn his way to Batman. I guess so. I guess I that's the studio like that. mentality, but it probably shouldn't right. work the other way. Because uh, well, yes, I would say so. Speed Race is a name, and a certain amount of people are going to pay to see it, no matter who made it. Although not as many as, as uh, people thought. But enough. Yeah. yeah. I never saw it. I, I actually heard it was fun. Yeah, I keep meaning to see it. Um, I need to borrow it from... Uh, but yeah, I, w- I would recommend to you, Tyler, and to anyone else to watch that that making. Uh, it's a, that really long making of on the first on the yeah. first Matrix. It's really fascinating. Well, the very everything about about the matrix as you as you mentioned i mean it's it's unknown people given what has to be i'm sure it's not as huge a budget as one would assume but still still exorbitant for people that as you said like bound which is i believe a, a fairly small film 
mm-hmm. with a limit with a small cast, and, and it's not that great. And it's not that great, but like to go from that to something huge, yeah, is I, I mean, I don't know how they managed to how they managed to sell it. Well, yeah, another thing I found out that I, I actually knew known before the special features. Maybe this is just because I'm a Matrix geek. I don't know right. if you know this that they they pretty much only made Bound as a sort of almost like a pitch document for the, the Matrix. Huh. They were trying to sell the Matrix and no one would give them the money to make it. Right. So they got they, they wrote this script and they or had the script. Yeah, and they got they. I mean, to their credit, they managed to drum up some buzz about Bound. Right. You know, they got that made. Right. And then they could show that to. The studios, and that's pretty much how they got the Matrix. They made they made Bound. This is how much they've been wanting to make the Matrix yeah. for you know years before yeah. before they did, and they they made Bound as like an audition for the Matrix. Huh. Which is which is strange to me because again I just don't see how how a studio could watch one and be like oh yeah I can trust you with this sci fi epic yeah um but you know but they did and that's that that's what fascinates me is that. Every once in a while, like the stu- a studio will just get something very right, and everything about the Matrix the studio got right. You went, it goes against what you've come to know as the studio mentality. Yeah, um, but it's also you know they went down to Australia, right? Because it's cheaper, but they're also kind of out of the reach. Yeah, I mean not to a great extent. This is right. uh, at that time still the 20th century, but late 20th century. Yeah, they've got the technology to be in contact. Yeah. you know. But I think it does have that sort of effect mentally, you know, on yeah. on the on the filmmakers and the crew and the cast that we're out here in this little outpost in Mad Max country, yeah. you know, <laughs> uh, going crazy with Warner Brothers money. Um, to get back to uh, to Carrie Ann Moss, uh, specifically her and and Keanu Reeves, uh, you you mentioned that she was very icy, mm-hmm. which I think works to a point. It works right up until she needs to be loving and affectionate, which she does is required to be in the later films. Yeah. And to a degree in the first one, but she's still kind of trepidatious about the idea of of falling in love and allowing herself to do that. And she she does that perfectly well. But you know, she has to seem like she's in a relationship now and uh it just does not uh doesn't really work out for me in the in the later films that that she's somebody's girlfriend and she's still <laughs> striking those poses, you know? And, uh, I don't know that, that I think maybe that's the problem with two and three for me is a lot of the things that were started in the first one, uh, are not really either. They're not done adequately enough in the second and third, or they just perhaps shouldn't have been done. Like I still maintain that Morpheus, not just because he fits the, the stereotype of the mentor who is supposed to die in act two, but just he, I feel like he should have died in the first matrix film, not because he fits that mold, but because they didn't really use him for much in the second and third. I mean, he has some moments of, of doubt, which it's important to see, but they don't really expound on that very much. And then he's proven to be right. But like, if you compare like his role in the first film, as opposed to his role in the second and third, it's just like, ah, oh, he shows up, but he's not given much to do, and that's more bothersome than anything to me. And so I feel like he would have had more impact if he had sacrificed himself for the good of the group in the first film. Not that I wanted to see him die, but just from a... 
I would rather have I would rather have seen the character die than see him just become fairly almost irrelevant to the story yeah. in the second and third. Uh, but that's my my personal opinion. Of yeah, him. but I mean, it it is it does make for an interesting transition between the first and second movies when we've we've gone from Morpheus being uh, the audience believing very strongly in Morpheus, right? You know, to suddenly a place where he is widely doubted. Yeah, you know, it. I think. Uh, I, I think him being around, it, it's true that they don't that he's not used very well. Right. But him still being alive in the second film uh, does lead to that sort of shocking, like, oh, this is what the real, real their world really is. You know, they're not. Yeah. You you were sort of imagining that Zion was a world full of people like like Morpheus. Yeah. You know, and you get to see that he's oh he's kind of an outlier. You know, I mean he's he's got pull because of his rank and his yeah. reputation. You know, but people think he's a little wacky. Yeah, I mean, I guess that yeah, yeah, you're you're right because in the first in the first film, he does come off as a definite authority figure. Mm-hmm. I mean, that you just you don't question him. He's got all the answers, and then you see him in the context of of Zion and and real people, and you realize like, oh, geez, people respect him to a point, but yeah, he's he's he really does become. I mean the a lot of the a lot of the metaphors in the first one are you know there's a lot of Christ analogy in the first one and he's John John the Baptist uh-huh. and then but of course John the Baptist dies and so so part of me feels like oh well perhaps he should die as well but if you look at what they do eventually do with his his character um, they make him perhaps even more like John the Baptist in the sense that he is crazy and nobody <laughs> likes him and nobody <laughs> nobody believes him everyone's just like ugh will you shut up. That seems to be the attitude for the most part. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I guess I, I don't I don't mind that, but I just wish that I wish that that had been perhaps more developed, or just instead they just incorporated a lot more characters. And in, in and I understand that in sequels that's okay, that it's okay to do, but like they didn't. I felt like they didn't really use the new characters. Like Her- I never know how you say his name. The guy from Lost and Oz. Pirano. Pirano. Something like that. Yeah. Uh, like Her- he's Harold introduced and, and he's he's fine, but he. His performance is fine, but he's not asked to do anything. Yeah, and it's just more frustrating. It really, it really feels that in a lot of ways, um, the Wachowskis uh, kind of lost their way in starting in the second film and then definitely in the third. Yeah, um, I mean, if you watch them again, I'm like I, I, I've made no bones just in these thirty-five minutes so far right. that I don't really like. I, I know the the sequels aren't that great. Yeah. But I am, in a way, kind of an apologist for them because if you if you watch them, you see the um, sort sort of uh, philosophical progression of the films, which right. is gonna that's gonna lead me into our next topic here. Okay, then we're gonna you know, neither of us is a philosoph- philosophy major. That's true. Um, so we're not really gonna go into the actual philosophy of the Matrix. Yeah. But we can talk about a philosophy in the Matrix, mm-hmm. uh, and I think one thing that a lot of sort of snobs. Uh, scoffed at especially in the, in the latter films is that there's not really uh one cohesive philosophical viewpoint of the right. matrix the matrix is sort of like uh, you know i have <clears throat> i have this book at home i'm a big buffy the vampire slayer fan as right. listeners know i have this book at home called philosophy and buffy the vampire slayer okay and it's essentially uh 
it, you could be, you could use it as like a high school teaching tool for if your high school is really into Buffy. It takes <laughs> it takes examples from Buffy and talks about different already existing philosophical ideas and how they're used in yeah you know how they manifest themselves in Buffy, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and strangely enough, they eventually did one of these for the Matrix too, one of the, one of those yeah. same same books. But that's kind of what the Matrix is. It's it's almost like a catalog of different philosophical ideas right. that are that are being given to us uh, through sci-fi action. Mm-hmm. You know, um, now a big part of the second and third ones is that the, uh, especially the third film, is that that that, that blend. It's that the, it sort of starts to separate. Yeah. You go from boring philosophical stuff to ridiculously stupid action stuff right yeah. <laughs> you know and it, it it loses it's uh it's sort of like it's in one of those uh one of those things that they used to separate like oh, uh, I have no in, idea. In, in in labs damn it i shouldn't have even brought it up because now i sound stupid damn it anyway uh but um what do you what, what did you think did you again i mean you were as a, as a christian you were yeah. into uh i mean some snobs wouldn't use the term philosophy in Christianity in the same sentence, but mm-hmm. it is it is a philosophy. Yeah. Uh, so, or maybe, maybe you're even more inclined than I am to think that way, since I'm more uh, empirical. Well, uh, it's uh... so did that did that register with you at all? And watching the Matrix movies, oh, yeah. were you thinking about the philosophy of it? Oh, absolutely. And thinking about what it was suggesting. Yeah, I mean, in the in the in the first film, I mean, the the Christ analogy is, I mean, it's it's very obvious. I mean, right down to the fact that like. A character says, "You're on my own personal Jesus Christ and <laughs> stuff." I mean, even I was just like, "Oh, jeez, <laughs> really? All right." Um, and I don't remember. It's it, it's stuff like his name is John Anderson, which if you look at the meanings, the meaning of both of those, like it means like the equivalent of what people have have referred to Jesus as, like Son of Man or like uh-huh. like Holy Son of Man or something like that. Uh, I don't quite recall. I'm sorry, everybody. Um, and then, like, the role of John the Baptist. There's a freaking Judas in there. There's kind of a Mary Magdalene. And the <laughs> idea that that he shows up to uh, liberate people from what they think is the truth. But, in fact, here's what the actual, here's what the actual truth is. Uh, the only way that he can fully become what he is meant to be is through is, kung fu is through kung fu just like in the bible <laughs> J- hey you know it all depends on the translation you read. um and so uh but no he has he jumps into agent smith right and uh-huh. so he's inside him and then like is that what happens does he jump into him or does agent smith turn into him i don't recall no, he jumps into agent smith he jumps into agent smith and then pretty much blows him up yeah right Sort of immolates him from the inside. Yeah, and so much in the same way in in you know the the Christian belief, it's the idea that for Jesus to fully become what he was, like in every sense of the word, he had to die, and and it's like, oh well, wait a minute, if God God Himself can't die, but it's the idea that Jesus was God and man, and so he has to die just as men do, but over but. And, over, and, and, yeah, overcome and, death, and Neo and does so, die in that hallway, right? And so, like, there's a lot of there's a lot of things. There's there's it's rampant. It's all over the place in the first one, uh, and then and then in the, in the, the third one, the first one though, it is more it is more cohesive. It's oh yeah, it's the it's a Christ, and there's lots of other stuff in there, you yeah. know. But uh, yeah, there is that sort of through line. That whereas, seems to be the the push, the the philosophical push of the first film. Yeah, and then it just kind of. 
it, and then it incorporates other things mm-hmm. and becomes sort of a sort of a hodgepodge, which is frustrating for me. Not necessarily just not necessarily just as a Christian, but also just the realizations like, well, in in having just one and having like just one philosophical analogy, in this case, Christ. Uh, it does bring a lot of elements together, and it does have a nice push. It definitely said, works better as a movie, right? Yeah. But then when you try and incorporate a lot of things, well, then you can't always you can't do everything at once, right? And that's why they're the, the, the sequels are lesser lesser movies, right? But they are fascinating, I think. Oh yeah. For that, especially the second one. Well, you know, even the first one, uh, we we have a lot of uh, Cartesian type stuff about you know trusting your senses and mm. you know what. What is real? Like, uh, what do you know other than other than the fact that you exist? Right. What can you trust? You know, yeah. and uh, what does it mean? Yeah. You know, like Cipher talking about. He's like, I know this isn't really steak. Yeah. You know, when he meets when he, which they never explain how he gets in and out on his own without someone else to. Nah. <laughs> that's not important. Um, and then with the second one, you especially there's the big part that a lot of. A lot of people, I think it was sort of a shark jumping moment for a lot of people. Where, but I still think it's really cool when yeah. he meets the architect at the end of the second film. I kind of here's the thing about about that scene. As I described it to you when we saw it, um, the scene is frustrating because just like I know pretty much all the words the architect just said, and yet I have no idea what he just said. Like well, you have to watch it. I mean, I've seen I've it, seen I've, it a couple times. Now. I saw it twice in the theater. I've seen it. Uh, two or three times since yeah. I bought it. So And I picked it, up on enough to understand what he's saying plot wise and stuff like that. And that and now that scene is actually very interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Um and I really like there there's a specific kind of hopelessness to that scene. Well Just, that's that's what the architect is trying to impose on him right. is hopelessness. Right. You know, he's and that that's that's the next the the the, the that's sort of the main philosophical if there is a through line which there isn't but if there right. were it, it would have to do with choice right uh, absolutely and free will yeah in, in the second in the second and third ones you know uh yeah. and how much how much do you really have how much is predetermined or how much or can can you change can you change things right. from their course through your choices and it's and it it has the idea of i mean the choice of course enters into this but the idea of of destiny and being, it's like okay, well, I'm Neo is the one, so what does that mean? Does that mean he remain? He can choose not to be the one. Does that, or does does the idea of fate does it factor in the fact that he just chose not to be the one, and it will still steer him back on course? Yeah, which is something that and. and and there's a great deal of self-sacrifice that has to come with being the one. And yeah, it's, it's a lot like uh, Buffy uh, <laughs> getting uh, deciding not to work with the Watchers Council anymore. Absolutely. It's just like that. It's just like that. <laughs> um, so the... Uh, <laughs> Dude, they can't see you roll your eyes. I, you know, I, th- I like to think they could. <laughs> um, but, uh, but as far as the third film goes, I remember looking at the... Uh, the, I think like the poster and then the the cover of the DVD, you'll actually see that it's like split into four quadrants. Uh-huh. It's like here's a guy in one of those big gun machines. Here's a bunch of Agent Smiths. Here's Neo doing something. And I look at that. I'm like, that is perfect. That's <laughs> absolutely. That's a nice little uh, uh, visual metaphor for the film itself. Because as you mentioned, it just feels like a bunch of things that 
seem to be happening in the same universe, but they don't seem to have much impact on each other. And the tonal shifts are so frustrating that mm-hmm. it goes from, as you said, just kind of a, a philosophical slog to all of a sudden, oh my gosh, now what's happening? You know, and the one the one thing because it has remained constant throughout is the relationship between Neo and Agent Smith. That is the one thing that has remained throughout all three and has developed and changed. And so the scene, the the scenes involving him and Agent Smith in the two sequels, but certainly the third one, those are by far the most intriguing to me. Mm-hmm. Um, even more so than when he confronts, you know, the, the machines themselves. Like, because we've because these two have grown together and it really is kind of like like Joker and Batman in in what uh, Joker says in the dark knight he says i feel like we are destined to do this forever and you really find the like a perfect arch nemesis for mm-hmm. neo in agent smith and so their arc over the course of the three films is i would say uh very satisfying and it's it's what has kept me coming back right so well, let's talk. Let's uh, let's end by going back to special effects real quick, okay. because uh, yeah, the bullet time stuff in the first one is amazing and right. perfect. And the second one, they get into okay. It has the uh, the scene that's referred to as the big brawl. Yeah. Uh, in the second one, when he meets with the Oracle, let's actually let's welcome back to that. Let's talk about the Oracle for a second. Okay. And what uh, delightfully crazy nerds the Wachowski brothers are. Okay. Okay. Now. Sadly, the woman who played the Oracle in the first two movies died. Right. Uh, and came back in the third one. Yeah. And if it was in a regular movie, they would have just quietly replaced her, you know? <laughs> yeah. Whereas the Wachowskis wrote in yeah. the, the, something. You ha- hey, you have to watch it three times to give, even get what the fuck there is going on. Yeah. But they wrote in <laughs> this whole plot as to why the Oracle looks different. It has to do with the Merovingian stealing her software yeah. and all this stuff that has nothing to do with the movie. But because right. they're nerds the way I am, yeah. uh, it sounds like I'm making fun, but I love that they did that. You know? Yeah. Because that's what, I, what, that's what I would want to do if I were... Well, if, the thing that got me was I liked the idea... If if they're gonna replace her, I like the idea of replacing like they replaced her with another older matronly black woman. Uh-huh. I like the idea of them replacing her with somebody who looks completely different and is maybe even a man. Like it just right. if they're gonna go with that direction, like what does it matter what the oracle looks like aside from just yeah? Oh but well, I assume this is the oracle. I think we can get it into some philosophical discussions here okay. as, because it's not just what she looks like; it's the way she is. That's true. It would be weird. I mean. Even if she did look like a young Asian man instead of an old black yeah. woman, she would still be into candy and she would still, yeah. you know, call him sugar or whatever. And so I think it makes sense. I think it would have been weird if you had had a young Asian man acting like an old black woman. I was thinking more along the lines of somebody like Hulk Hogan or just like a big guy who... <laughs> but then I guess it would just become too ridiculous to have yeah. him say sugar yeah. um, and give people cookies. Oh. Yeah, but uh, Adam Baldwin could have done that so well. <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't that have been awesome? Yeah. Um, um, but anyway, okay, what were we talking about? Uh, the big brawl. He meets with the Oracle right. in the second one, and then um, they're in sort of that concrete playground type of area, that's, yeah. and then all the Agent Smiths start coming, right. and he fights them all. And it's actually a pretty awesome fight sequence, except for there are parts of it where it goes into the what is still... The bane of my mainstream movie-going existence, okay. motion fucking capture. And right. it's not just because I have had horrible jobs in the motion capture industry, yeah. but 
it doesn't look right. It's it works for some things, you yeah. know, um, and occasionally you have someone as awesome as uh, as Peter Jackson and his people doing Gollum, and it works, right. you know, right. occasionally. Yeah, but to just plug it in to a movie that otherwise looks kind of real, you yeah. know, especially that I mean that's that 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 playground is supposed to exist in, you know, you can't forget that the Matrix is still the audience's idea of the real world, right? So it, when he starts, like, he does a thing where he spins around and sort of almost, like, takes off, like he yeah. flies up in the air. And it's really cool, but it's so, so looks like, it looks like the sort of computer visualization of what the finished project should product should look like. Well, and, and the- so I'm just using this opportunity to uh, bash motion capture like I do every chance I get, yeah. you know. I mean, it's okay in stuff like Beowulf where it's all a cartoon. Right, right. You know, but... Motion capture mixed with live action. Well, especially it's at that not time. there yet. It might get there eventually. It's not there yet, and it certainly wasn't there in two thousand three. Right. I mean, it's certainly yeah. That's it, they should not have used that technology because the technology is still relatively new as far as using it with like people and. I mean, motion capture. I <laughs> up until fairly recently, like if you watch the special features on Jurassic Park, it was like okay, well we've got this model here, uh-huh. and we'll put these things on it. And uh, that way we can combine, like, kind of claymation or stop-motion animation, and we'll feed it into the computer. And that way we, can, uh, we don't have to manipulate it on the computer. Like, it was, it was really, it was very basic, and uh-huh. that's kind of what it was. And then it's like, we can put it on something that moves itself, like uh-huh. a person. Oh, boy. Um, but, yeah, in 2003 it certainly was not to the point where it is now. And it's even now it's still... It's still I mean, I Am Legend, it did not yeah. work... Which is why that movie I liked. I am Legend a lot. And yeah, it really sticks in my craw that they had to use motion capture for the bad guys. It would have been a better movie yeah. if they had been real people in makeup. Yeah, and and it fascinates even even you phrasing it that they had to do that. No, no, that they felt they had to do right. that. There's no reason they had to do that. There's no reason at all. It I'm would sure have George been a better Romero film. Was like, what the hell? Come on. Yeah, um, that's what I'm saying. It would have been a better film if they were real people. In Tom Savino, uh, Tom Savini, still alive. Go yeah. get him. Yeah. Um. But uh. Yeah. And that's why that that fight uh, with him and, and the agent Smith on the playground it is frustrating. Like it's because it's, it's an it, awesome fight. It's a great fight, but like the faces don't look right, and you can tell like ah yes, that's why they're all wearing sunglasses. Uh. Because uh, it's hard to get the eyes right when mm-hmm. it's so obviously computer graphics. Um. Yeah. And and it it is a great fight, and it's just like oh man, if they had not done this. Yeah, I don't know, but uh, maybe that was the only thing available to them at the time, or maybe that's because one way or another they were going to have to use computer graphics. Yeah, you know, and so I don't know. I think it probably would have never looked really great. But the brawl is a lot of fun, yeah, because it's all very practical. But, uh, yeah, most of it. Yeah, that's what yeah. I, and that's what I like about as as special effects laden as these movies are, and we can end on this okay. is that uh, is uh, that they're great action movies. Yeah. Uh, because they trust in putting two people, training them up, and putting yeah. two people hand to hand and with some weapons, yeah, and not, uh, you know, except for these occasional missteps, they don't have to rely on special features all the time yeah. or special effects. Especially, yeah. um, and when they do, like we said at the beginning, they use the special effects to augment the fight. Right. You know, I'm thinking. Of, I think the greatest fight in the whole uh, trilogy is just that fight that it comes out of nowhere when he goes, he's looking for the key maker and he goes into that, uh, <laughs> and there's uh what's that? I can't remember the dude's name now. The character's name. 
but he's just sitting there drinking tea and then he gets up and like bows and they fight yeah for like i don't know six minutes yeah and it's awesome it's an awesome fight for it <laughs> they haven't offended each other yeah there's no reason for them to fight except that like you say you don't uh until you uh what i can't i, well, I can't remember the guy's name but he says you never really know someone until you fought them right. you know and i think that's uh uh, I've always taken, taken that line to be, even though it's not spoken with Agent Smith anywhere near the room, yeah. it speaks directly to the relationship between Neo and Agent Smith, yeah. is that no one understands the other one more than right. the other one does. Right. That that sentence made perfect sense if you go back. It sure it, did. It, de- it technically did. What <laughs> I like about that scene is it might as well start with that uh, fun little exchange in The Simpsons where it goes, let's fight. Them's fighting words. Yeah. <laughs> That's, that seems like it could have started with that because it is kind of, it is kind of abrupt. <laughs> or like the, uh, <laughs> there's a thing in Kung Fu Panda. Uh, I see you enjoyed chewing. Why don't you chew on this or something like on that? My fist. <laughs> on my fist. Perhaps you'd like to chew on my fist. <laughs> Kung Fu Panda is a lot of fun. Speaking of great action movies, that is a great action movie. Yeah, it's kicking uh, ass. But let's, I don't want to end the Matrix discussion by saying, that Kung Fu Panda is pretty good too. But you know what? We kind of could talk about it because true. that's one thing we haven't, we've, we haven't really talked about the lasting impression in any yeah. good way. Yeah, that's true. Um, it, I think uh, there are obviously a lot of bad movies that came out because of The Matrix. That's always going to happen. There's yeah. a lot of bad movies that came out because of Pulp Fiction. We're s- still dealing with the aftermath of Jaws. Here's the thing. <laughs> I, I think I think the bad movies would have come out either way, but the way in which they were made right. is owed to The Matrix. But they would have come out one way or another. It just the action would have been a different kind, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah, but I mean, there's a lot of... Uh, I think the Matrix was in in a, in a way a lot of really sort of freeing for a lot of people mm-hmm. who uh, maybe felt they had to do action a certain way because yeah. that's how it had been done and yeah. it was suddenly done in in new ways. You can see it uh if you um I I've been talking about Buffy a lot this whole episode because yeah. I'm uh even more nerdy about Buffy than I am, I am about the Matrix. Yeah. Um you can see it within months if you look at season 4 of Buffy hmm. and you look at the fight the fight scenes in early in season four and the fight scenes at the end. Yeah. Uh it's amazing how much faster, how much uh like again, again, just they just feel freed, freed up, you know, yeah. and they get like they can do anything they want now, you know, especially since Buffy's superhuman as well. You know? Of course. Yeah. Uh and that's uh, and yeah, and you talk about Kung Fu Panda, like because it's animation, uh you still wouldn't have seen uh even though Kung Fu Panda is, has a lot of homages to uh, Hong Kong, yeah, you know, uh, Kung Fu movies, live-action Kung Fu movies, mm-hmm. you, it still wouldn't look the way it does now if it weren't for The Matrix. Yeah, that's a, yeah, you're you're absolutely right. Um, because, yeah, again, yeah. they're allowed to be superhuman. They're allowed to be faster than you actually could be. Right. And it actually, and it kind of uh, permeated um, superhero movies to a degree as well because... Rather than simple brute strength, something that became important was quickness. You know, you see it in the Spider-Man films. You kind of see it in the X-Men films. Uh, But they, I'd say, because up until Matrix, and I mean, there were some Jackie Chan movies that had uh, gotten very popular in uh, the States and stuff. But up until then, you had, like, the, the standard for action was, like, uh, Sylvester Stallone, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Steven Seagal, and Van Damme, who they were quick and they were doing some neat moves, but again, it did it. It seemed to be a function of like who can just bash the person in the hardest, you know. Uh-huh. And 
And up until then, that's the only way I ever thought of action, or certainly fight like choreographed fighting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then movies, very uh, movies like you know Rumble in the Bronx and various other Jackie Chan films, kind of kind of got you used to seeing amazing things. And then incorporating special effects into that, you've got The Matrix, which I think just it's just such an amazing because like action movies are are often they're either like fighting or explosions or special effects. Uh-huh. Matrix has all of them. And it's and it uses them all to like the absolute best effect and yeah it's just as far as like if we were making a list of like the one hundred best action movies of all time I would put Matrix in the top ten if not top five top three for me yeah it's just Die Hard Raiders of the Lost Ark and Matrix I'd say that's about right those are the best action movies ever made yeah it's just it, it really I mean it it revolutionized a lot of things just the like action special effects and also just the kinds of movies that are it maybe didn't revolutionize this but movies like the matrix encourage me because it took and sci-fi and horror can do this uh-huh. a lot where it takes stuff that people are kind of used to seeing and then it kind of gets some interesting analogies in there some interesting philosophy stuff that people haven't seen before and it didn't have to make any kind of intellectual compromises to to uh, appeal to a wide audience. That's kind of what I like. Uh, th- that's the potential of horror and sci-fi and action, is everything is so stylized that that people come for one thing and wind up getting that and another thing. Um, and Matrix is, is a great example of that as well. But uh, anyway, we've been going for a while. Yeah, now. this is a good time to wrap up. We This, yeah. was, this was fun. It uh, was fun. We didn't get to talk about... Um, race in the Matrix, which is a big That's deal. True. But if you want to go back, if you're a newer listener, yeah. and find our our episode with Wyatt Cenac, forty one episode, episode 41. number forty one, um, where in which we talk about race in the movies, yeah, uh, you will uh, find plenty of talk, yeah, uh, about uh, about race in the Matrix, yeah. So uh, so yeah, thanks everybody for uh, for listening, and uh, we'll get you next time. Bye bye. <laughs>